This morning we have two um, passages of scripture that I'll be reading. It's Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7, and Romans 5, verses 18 through 21. So please stand for the reading of God's word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Romans 5, 18 uh, through 21. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. So um, I see Tim Graves is here this morning. And uh, we've been praying for Tim and Lynn and their daughter, Lauren. We, we mentioned last week that Lauren passed away. And um, Tim, we love you. We're so glad you're here. Um, we're with you. Um, oh. I have no idea why a golf ball just dropped out of here onto here. That was really weird. That did not come from my pocket. Um, um, isn't this a great picture? Um, we want to invite you on December 9th, the service, Lauren's service is going to be here at Grace at 3. And so um, if you're around, uh, that's a Saturday, we'd love to have you. And remember her um, grieve with Tim and Lynn and Sarah, their, daughter, their other daughter, and celebrate where Lauren is right now. So, but we love you. We're glad you're here. It's amazing you're here. Um, I saw that this week. I just love that photo. Where is that? In Scotland. In Scotland. Okay. Yeah, that is beautiful. Well, we love you. Oh, there we go. Okay. Um, so this is our final week on this series uh, on embodied, what it means to have bodies, to live in these bodies. And we've been, uh, we're taking two weeks to cover the issue of being gendered bodies. Uh, and last week I gave a, a biblical framework for understanding gender and sexuality and just argued for God's 
good plan, his beautiful good plan, making us male and female, and then of course bringing male and female together in marriage and making those two one flesh, which itself is a reflection of the love that Jesus has for his church. Now, that, is, that is the view out of which our, our own decisions about our own gender and our own sexual decisions emerges out of that good and beautiful um, plan that God has. And anything outside of that, whether that be sex before marriage or adultery or homosexuality or uh, finding a gender identity outside of our physical bodies is, is not part of God's good plan for us. And so I want to end uh, this series and kind of this is part two of that conversation. I just want to ask us the question, what kind of a community are we called to be? And I'll just let you, like this, this message went in a completely different direction than I expected it to. And I was going to try to like field all like the practical issues. Like what if this happens? I'm talking to this person. And I realized like all of those are so specific to the, to the particular person and the, and the moment and what the relationship is and all of that. So I, 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 that's where I had planned to go. And the more I try to get inside of that, I'm like, I, I, that's a Q&A. That's not like a, I can't do that in a message. And so I want to instead, so this is a, uh, this sort of a disclaimer, different than I had planned. Uh, could be worse, could be better, I have no idea. Um, but I want to just big picture, what, who are we called to be as a community? Last week I mentioned this idea of being a community of compassionate concern in this conversation about sexuality. Certainly that, but what else? What, how are we supposed to be? And here's what I'm thinking about this. I love what Mark just shared about the church in Iran. Um, we are in, an increasing minority in our country. Okay, secularism at least for now, seems to be um, gripping the nation and its views of gender and sexuality is, is happening. And so we, we may be an increased mi minority, and that is what it is. My question today is, how can we be a faithful presence in our nation? How can we be a prophetic voice into our nation? And what kind of a people can offer that kind of presence and voice? That's what I wanna talk about. And my big picture is we need to be a community of the cross, a community that finds its place at the foot of the cross. And so we're gonna celebrate communion at the end today as a way to kind of you know, tangibly take this on. But um, we are to be a community of costly, radical, cruciform discipleship to Jesus Christ. And only that kind of community has anything to say to our culture today, okay? So this is not so much about a conversation about those people out there today. <laughs> this is a conversation about us and what we are called to be, a community of the cross. So Mayer uh, read that second passage, Romans 5, where Paul contrast these two men, right? The first man, Adam, and what he calls elsewhere, the last man, Jesus. Uh, and these two trees that they found themselves at, right? Genesis 3, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that Adam found himself at. And then Romans 5, another tree, the cross that Jesus found himself at. And two decisions that were made at these two trees, one, a decision to try to grab for life apart from God, to find life for ourselves, and this completely opposite decision to surrender one's life in, in trusting obedience to God. And two destinies that have resulted, one brought sin and judgment and death, and one brings forgiveness and freedom and life. What I want to say today is, in a culture that is constantly grasping at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we are called to be a community of the cross. 
okay? And it's from the cross that we actually have something to say and something to show to the world. So that's what I wanna talk about today. What does it mean to be a community of the cross? And I wanna look at three specific things. I wanna talk about identity today. I wanna talk about desire. And I wanna talk about suffering, what Mark already mentioned, okay? Identity, desire, and suffering. And how do we approach those three things in this world today? So first, let's talk about identity. And I wanna, I'm gonna, we're gonna look at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we'll contrast that with the cross, all right? So here's a different picture of the tree, all right? I don't think it was an apple tree, but that looks like a really good tree. So Genesis 3, we had Mayor read for us, right? Uh, God puts Adam and Eve in the garden, gives them everything they could possibly want, and, and puts one limit on them, one single prohibition, tree of knowledge, good and evil, don't eat that tree. And then the serpent comes, and he comes asking questions. Did, did God really say that you can't eat from this tree? And what he does, of course, is he sows doubts in their mind about the goodness of God. That's a really good-looking tree. Right? Why would, why would your creator withhold that from you? He, he's actually not that generous. He is a withholder. He, he's keeping you back. There's something good that he doesn't want you to have. Namely, you cannot trust him. You can't trust him. And since you can't trust him, well, he says this, well, God knows that when you eat this, you will become like him, knowing good and evil. Right? God is holding you back. He doesn't want you to be an equal to him. He, he wants to keep you in your place. But what you need to do, since you can't trust your creator, is you need to grasp for this tree, which means you need to define for yourself what is good and what is evil. You need to decide for yourself what will be helpful for you and unhelpful. You do not need a God telling you what is good and evil. You can decide for yourself what is good and evil. You can chart your own way, okay? That's the temptation of the tree. And I, I say all that because we are living in a postmodern society right now where we are seeing the extremes of that quest. We will define for ourselves what is good and evil. And we're starting to redefine really fundamental things. Like really almost 60 years ago, we began to re redefine the concept of marriage, right? This this ancient institution that all human societies have had, we've said, we're going to redefine that. It's no longer a covenant, lifelong commitment between a man and a woman. Marriage, we're going to define it as two people, any two people who happen to have feelings for each other at some point in time. That's what we're going to decide marriage is. And now we're seeing even the radical redefinition of gender itself, something as fundamental as our biology. We are saying even our biology does not put limits on us. We will decide for ourselves what is good and what is evil. It's, it's a very radical expression of that. But it's been, out, it's been around for, since human beings have been around. But I, in terms of identity, that's what I'm talking about here. What, what, what the culture is saying is you need to find your identity not in the limits that are placed on you by a god or by society or, ever, or whatever, but you need to find your identity in breaking out of those limits, creating your own truth, making your own rules, carving your own way. And here's the sum of what I want to say about identity. Identity is not something that is given to you is what the culture is saying. Identity is something you create and you define, and you can redefine for yourself, right? 
And that view of identity promises freedom, <laughs> right? No limits. You can be whatever you want. You can decide whatever you want. No one should hold you back. Imagine the freedom that you can have from that kind of life. And it does not deliver on its promise. If we are so free, then why are we more confused now? And why is there more anxiety in our country than ever before? And depression and suicide. What is, what is happening with all this freedom that we've given ourselves? Turns out human beings were not meant to bear the weight of deciding all of these things for themselves. You with me? Okay, that is, that is how the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, how, how grasping from that sounds. And, and what's so ironic is, um, yeah, this freedom is not leading, this, this limitlessness is not leading to freedom. It's leading to uh, insecurity, really, and all sorts of anxieties. In the midst of that, now I want to talk about us. <laughs> what are we called to? We are called to be a community of the cross. And here's how this works. We come to this tree, okay? And this is the tree that counteracts the lies of the serpent. That lie that says, God doesn't love you, God's not generous, God is withholding good things from you. We look at the cross and we see the son of God on the cross dying for us and we go, oh my gosh, Satan, you're lying, right? God did not withhold his only son. God is not a withholder. God is incredibly generous. What more could he give us than his own son? He loves us so much. He's willing to do anything for us. He has our good in mind, Jesus himself. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. We are so loved. And when it comes to our identity, the cross tells us identity is not something you create. It is something you receive from God. And here's your identity. I want you all to hear this today. You have a twofold identity in Christ. First is this, you're really broken. That's what the cross tells you. Let me make it strong. You're a sinner. You're a rebel. You're, uh, you're wildly imperfect. And that's what this tree tells you. But secondly, you are loved. You are loved with an ever lasting love. I'm saying those words, I'll bet those words are not hitting you, mo most of you this morning. You are loved with an everlasting love. God did not withhold his only son. You are a sinner who is deeply loved and forgiven and accepted. And we, we looked at this a couple months ago. <laughs> the cross tells you this, you are no longer your own. You were bought at a price. You don't belong to yourself anymore. You belong to God, body and soul. You are known by him, you are loved by him. And so for the Christian, our identity is not about who we are. It is about whose we are, right? That's a cliche, but it's very true. We find our identity in whose we are. We do not create our identity. We receive it as sheer gift. And it is unchanging. And it is immovable. And it is stable and steadfast through the ups and downs of life. Because our God does not fail. And you belong to him. That is who you are. That is whose you are.
And what I want to suggest is when we start living that, when we start living that, that is the, the prophetic voice we actually offer to this world. This world that is so restless, honestly, and weary, and rediscovering and redefining itself and, and just trying to find its way to that restless, weary, anxious world. When we're living from this place, we have a voice that says, come all who are weary and restless and anxious and find rest in whose you are. Stop trying to figure yourself out. You are known and loved by God, and we've experienced it. And we live with this humble confidence, this security in knowing whose we are, and we get to offer that kind of foundational security, humble confidence to other people. Step out of the, the race of trying to figure yourself out. You are God's. But we have to live it in order to be a prophetic voice about it. So my first question to you this morning is this. Are you grounded in your identity in Christ? Is this where you live your life out of? Or are you still desperately trying to find your identity in your work or your wealth or the success of your kids uh, or a relationship, or a talent that you have, or some sort of performance that you do before people? Is that, are you still running around trying to define yourself and validate yourself in those ways? Or have you come to rest in whose you are in Jesus Christ? This is the call for us before it's a call for the world. I love um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is uh, a guy who changed my life, an author who's changed my life. He was a, a German pastor during World War II. He was part of the resistance and he ended up in a concentration camp uh, in Nazi Germany where he would end up dying. But he wrote a poem called Who Am I? And I won't read it to you. I don't have time, but um, I love this poem. It, it starts by saying, um, they tell me that I come out of my barracks with confidence and, and, and hope. They tell me that I interact with, with, the, with the guards with grace and truth. He talks about how people perceive him, but then he talks about how he experiences himself. They don't know that I'm actually deeply insecure. I'm fearful. I, I, I dread for death, you know, all, all these things. And he, he, the poem ends, who am I? Am I this or that? Or I'm sometimes this or that? And he's wrestling, trying to figure out who am I? And he ends, it's this kind of wrestling poem, and it ends saying, Lord, whoever I am, you know because I am yours. And this is the journey of every follower of Jesus, is to come out of that wrestling, wandering identity search and to find it in Jesus, and then to offer to people who are gay, or people who are straight, or people who are trans, or people who are Democrats, or whoever, or Republicans, sorry, I meant to spill that up. Sorry, that didn't go right. I meant to finish off the, uh, the, the call those... Uh, those called uh, heaven and earth, right? Uh, land and sky. They're called some merisms. Yes, the, the opposites equal the whole. Okay, yeah. Sorry. The golfers of the world. Come home, find your identity in Jesus. But we have to do it first. Okay. All right. So second, um, this is the one I really wanted to talk about. I think I want to talk about desire. How do we think about desire? Every human being has to have a, a, a theology of desire. What do we think about the desires that we have? Are they good? Are they bad? Are they ugly? Are they awesome? Should we pursue them? How do we think about desire? And um, 
you know, back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, verse six says, the woman saw that the fruit was desirable. <laughs> right? there, it's a something to be desired for gaining wisdom, it says. And so what should I do? This is very desirable. What should I do with that? And we have ancient, certain ancient cultures that say desires are bad. Like desires are the root of problems. We gotta snuff out our desires. Some of you grew up in fundamentalist conservative backgrounds that had a similar view, right? Desires are bad, right? We don't desire sex. That might lead to dancing, right? That kind of thing, right? Um, <laughs> desires are bad. Yeah, stay with it, yeah. Um, Postmodern society has a view of desire, and here it is. Desires are self-authenticating, okay? Meaning, the fact that you have a desire deep within you authenticates the val validity of that desire, especially if you didn't actively choose that desire, like maybe you were born with that desire, especially if that, de that desire is very deep within you and very persistent and doesn't go away. If it's that kind of a desire, it is something that you ought to express. And we think that especially in the, in the sexual arena, right? So, so if a boy grows up having a persistent desire, sexual desire for other boys, or has same-sex attraction, they didn't ask for it, they just had it, they grew up having it, then that boy should be free to pursue that, right, without constraints. It's, an, it's a, it's a self-authenticating desire. Or if, or if a girl has profound gender dysphoria and feels out of touch with her body, um, she ought to, that authenticates, she ought to try to conform the body to this deep inner desire that she has. Desires are self-authenticating, right? In the sexual arena, especially in our culture, there are no bad desires, right? You do you, I do me, um, don't yuck my yum. I won't yuck your yum, as they say, right? Like, hey, as, as long as there's consent, right? As long as I'm not actively harming somebody else, desires are self-authenticating. That's our culture's view. Now, there's a problem with that that I think we're beginning to see, and it's this, that we become enslaved to our desires. We become uh, addicted to our desires. And when our desires actually aren't in line with the way God created us, we become confused, we become unfulfilled, empty, full of pleasure, but without a lot of meaning. And Romans 1 says that God's judgment on human beings was basically he handed them over to their broken desires. Right? Here's, this is what you want, I will give you what you want. And you will find yourself increasingly confused and unfulfilled. And that's what we're seeing today. So, but I want to talk about us today. <laughs> what is a, a cross-centered view of desire? And here's what I think it is. It is not that desires are inherently bad, right? In fact, God gave us desire. He created desire, and he longs to be the fulfillment of our desires. But the biblical view is this, but we have disordered desires, okay? We have these desires, these natural desires that are now uh, out of whack, uh, they're twisted in unhealthy ways. Sometimes we desire certain things too much, other things we don't desire enough, and some we desire in the wrong way. We have, ever since the fall, disordered desires. We have disordered sexual desires. And let me say, again, <laughs> to most of us in this room, whether Democrat or Republican, most of us um, have are, are broken sexually in this room. We have disordered sexual desires. I will make this personal. I appear have many disordered sexual desires. 
And we have other disordered desires connected with food and connected with work and connected with wealth and connected with relationship, right? We have all sorts of disordered desires, but true life is not found in fulfilling those disordered desires, but in bringing those disordered desires to the foot of the cross and crucifying, offering those things deep within us at the cross and saying, God, here I am. This is the stuff within me. I didn't even ask for it. It's just there. But I offer it to you. What do you want me to do with this? This is what Paul says. Those who belong to Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its desires. Wow. Jesus says, anyone come after me, let him deny himself, right? Take up his cross. This is what he's talking about. Jesus himself did this. He had to do this. He was going, the last night of his ministry, he had a very natural desire to preserve his life. <laughs> Remember that in Gethsemane? And he's like, God, here's my desire. I don't want to die. I don't want to feel this pain. Lord, can this cup pass for me? Can we, can we come up with an audible? Can we do something different here? But what he does is he takes that desire, very natural desire, and he lays it at the foot of God and, and crucifies it. God, this is what I want, and yet, not my will, right, but yours be done. And this is what we're called to do. And I, I want to just, are you guys still with me? Yeah. Okay. I, I want to think carefully about desire, especially in this conversation that we're having about gender and sexuality. Um, I want you to think about what I'm going to say. You can disagree with me. I don't think most of our desires are chosen in any sort of active way. I think desires are given. We, we simply find ourselves desiring certain things. Now, we can, we can kind of, you know, encourage, feed those or not. But, um, you know, I've got three kids, and at five years old, they were all so different, and I could already see, oh, honey, this is the challenge you're going to have in life, and this is the challenge, and they're so different. But what I mean is when you were growing up, when you were a little kid, you didn't, like, look at a list of disordered desires and, and make choices. Mine are going to be anxiety and fear. Uh, mine are going to be lust and pride. And mine are going to be anger and resentment. Okay? None of us made anything close to an active choice in those things. We, it, it wasn't like a, a pull-down menu that we chose. It was more like um, we were playing a card game and someone dealt us a set of cards. <laughs> Right? And you, and you kind of look at your card like, oh, I guess my hand is uh, anxiety and fear and restlessness, or my hand is... We, we, we find ourselves with these desires at a very early age, and they're different from each other, but we don't, in any conscious way, actively choose them. That's my experience of my own, my own disordered desires. Now, as Christians... That shouldn't be a problem for us at all because we, have, we believe in, in original sin. We believe that we are born with a sinful nature, okay? And so I'll, you know, I've had you know, friends over the years and people who have th their card was same-sex attraction, for instance, okay? And they would say, I didn't ask for this. I didn't choose this. And I've heard a lot of Christians say, no, you must have chosen. They're like, I kind of was born into this. Or like early experiences that I had no control over. This, I didn't, this is the cards I was dealt and I would look at that person and say, I believe you. <laughs> I absolutely believe you. Now, not all, in every case, everyone's story is different, but I have no problem saying, I completely believe you. And that gives me tremendous compassion for you. 
because I know exactly what it feels like to have desires that are disordered that I didn't really choose and didn't really want. I even know what it's like to have sexual desires that are disordered that I didn't want. I understand that I have tremendous compassion for you. I would grant you that. But <laughs> the fact that that's true tells us nothing as followers of Jesus about what we do with those desires. We are still called to take those disordered desires that we didn't ask for and bring them to the foot of the cross. Say, Jesus, this feels unfair even. I, I, I didn't ask for this and yet here it is. But my task is always the same, to bring these before you and to crucify them. Say, Lord, help me to follow you in a way that is honoring and faithful to you. Okay? And we are all called to do that. And so my question, not to those out there, but to you, <laughs> to us, is this. Are we a community that is regularly crucifying our disordered desires at the foot of the cross and seeking obedience to Jesus in costly and radical ways. I know we're not always gonna get it perfect, but can you say my regular habit is to take the desires I have that are out of line with what God would want and I bring those to the foot of the cross and I crucify those and I ask Jesus, Jesus, I surrender this. Not my will, not my desire, but your will and desire be done. Or are we a community that lets our desires drive us? For instance, how do you actually go about your life? Would you say these, these things of yourself? When I want something, I just buy it. Like when I just, I want something, I, I just buy it. I don't, I don't think about that desire, I just do it, I buy it. Uh, when I have the urge to look at something, I indulge it. When I'm cut off on the, wrong, uh, on the road, I honk it, right? <laughs> when I'm stressed and I want a drink, I just take it. When I'm anxious and fearful about something, I just avoid it. Would we say, is that how we're living our lives? Because the, the great danger in this whole gender and sexuality conversation is that the church is out there judging you know, LGBTQ folks, um, telling them they need to crucify these really profound desires when meanwhile, things like premarital sex are rampant in the church, right? Where um, pornography is rampant in the church, where Divorce for no, on no biblical grounds is rampant in the church, right? We lose our prophetic voice when the world would look at us and say, you guys aren't crucifying your desires. Why would you ask us to do something that we don't want to do and we don't see you doing it? But when we do that, we offer a faithful presence, a Jesus community, a different way of being in the world that we can then invite people into. We never want to say to a gay or trans person, uh, or we only want to say, what I'm at, I, or let's say, <laughs> we never want to say, basically, that's, let me try this. I never want to ask you to do something that I am not doing myself, if I can put it that way. I will never ask you to do something that you wouldn't see me doing myself in my life all the time. I'm simply inviting you into a journey that I'm already on. That's what we want to say. So what's your theology of desire? What do you do with your desires? And then finally, let's talk about suffering. Identity, desire, and suffering. Of course, uh, the tree that the culture tends to grab from um, 
It promises happiness and satisfaction. There is no suffering. And I think we're living in a culture that increasingly just has no place for suffering. You know, like, and, and if there's no, like, deep, deep meaning to the world, if, if things have just sort of happened and there's no, like, God and no, like, moral absolutes, then what's the point of life? There's no, there's, and there's no life after death. Like, what is the point of life? It's essentially, for the most part, it's a little crass or a crude, simple way of saying it, but I want to maximize pleasure and joy, and I want to minimize pain and suffering, uh, the, the years I've got left here, right? And so that doesn't leave, there's no moral value to suffering, if I can put it that way. I mean, yeah, suffering makes us stronger. I could see that some, but, but suffering is, is primarily a waste of time. And, and it's, it's something we want to get out of and avoid. And um, what was the Eugene Peterson quote? How did he phrase that? Gosh, it was so good. work. Yeah, don't try to prematurely, there's something, the culture wants to get out of suffering as quickly as, as we can. And so that really impacts this conversation about gender and sexuality, right? Like, um, it's hard for the culture to imagine asking, for instance, a gay person, a, per- a person who has same-sex attraction, to live a celibate life, okay? So like, there's a 20-year-old guy, um, and he wants to be with other guys, right? He's attracted to other guys. It's a bit, it doesn't make any sense. You're, you're asking him potentially either to enter a very complicated marriage with a woman, potentially, or to be single and celibate. That is a level of suffering for maybe 60 years. That, that's like a non-starter when relief is right around the corner in a same-sex relationship, right? You can't ask someone to, that's a long time to suffer, or, or if a, again, if a person experiences profound gender dysphoria, they've always felt out of touch with their body, and, and relief is at least seemingly around the corner, there's a lot of debate about this, through transitioning, through presenting as the, as the gender that you identify with. That's a big ask to ask someone to suffer that sense of incongruity their whole lives, potentially. And so it's just kind of a non-starter. Why would we ever have people suffer like that when relief is right around the corner for them? Or two, hey, two young people who got married, and they're just not a good fit together, <laughs> right? Why would we ask them to suffer a tough marriage for 60 years, potentially, when relief is right around the corner? If you don't have a theology of suffering, there's no answer to that. You should get out. You should transition. You should, right, get in a relationship. You will be so much happier, and they probably will be so much happier, oftentimes. Life will be easier. But as Christians who stand at the foot of the cross, we have a very different view of suffering, don't we? Or do we? <laughs> Such a different view. We have a category that the world does not have for suffering. I want to put up her. It's called this redemptive suffering. It's a fundamental Christian category for suffering. We can suffer redemptively. We can find meaning and purpose in suffering. And this tree, this tree, the cross, forever ought to change our view of suffering. Okay? This tree tells us the darkest day in history, literally, the worst event in human history is actually the event that brings about our salvation. The greatest good in the world came from the worst evil in the world. And for Jesus, 
This was his moment of great suffering and shame in the moment where it felt like God had abandoned him, right? He actually cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? God, you are so distant from this event. Turns out that very event is his moment of glory in the moment when God was most profoundly working in him. That's crazy. The moment where he felt God most absent was actually the moment where God was most working through the event that he was a part of. Suffering had the most deep meaning of all time. And and once we've seen this tree, this tree right here, that forever changes our view even of our own suffering. Suffering has meaning for the Christian. Mark said it. We rejoice in our sufferings, Paul says. That's wild, wild idea. And I don't know if I'd ever rejoice in my sufferings. I don't know if I could get there. But we can find deep meaning in suffering. Obviously, suffering produces character, the Bible says. Suffering refines our faith. But more than that, in our suffering, we have a suffering Savior, Jesus, who knows suffering and finds us in our suffering in ways that he does not find us any other time in our lives. And so our suffering can be a place where we experience God's grace and mercy and presence like nowhere else. Suffering for the Christian has meaning. And so what that means is that we as a community, we choose redemptive suffering over relief. That's what the Christian is called to. That's what the Iranians are doing. They're choosing redemptive suffering over relief. And when we do that, we can offer a prophetic voice to the world, right? Your sufferings can have meaning. Your suffering is not pointless. You can stay in this hard place and find deep meaning and purpose. It is not wasted. God is working in it. He can work in anything. And in fact, he works in all things. Suffering can't be avoided anyways, but it can be infused with meaning. And so, That's what we are calling people out there to. And my question to you is, what would it look like for you right now in this season of your life to suffer faithfully and redemptively? Where are you being called by God to suffer? Maybe to stick with something or to enter into something (laughs) rather than to seek relief. Some of you suffer a very painful marriage. It's hard. Life might be easier without your spouse, but you faithfully suffer that marriage and there's redemption for you in that. Some of you are suffering a very unsatisfying job. You don't like it, it doesn't fulfill you, but it's where God has you right now and it's what provides and you suffer it faithfully. Uh, Some of you suffer relational conflict for standing firm in the truth in this culture. And to the point of our series, Some of you are suffering in your bodies right now um, through sickness or cancer um, or just getting old, right? Outwardly, you are wasting away, yet inwardly, you're being renewed day by day. We are called to suffer redemptively. And then from that place, we have a prophetic voice to the world that says, you can pursue faithfulness and your suffering is not without meaning. So there we have it. This is what we're called to, to be a community of the cross, finding our identity in the cross, 
crucifying our disordered desires at the foot of the cross and embracing redemptive suffering for the sake of Jesus. So that's our series on the body. Uh, uh, before I, uh, yes, um, thank you. I want to make you aware of uh, two resources in our community. Julie Bowling is an anthropo uh, anthropology teacher at uh, Cal, at, um, oh gosh, Cal Baptist, thank you, Cal Baptist. Uh, she's a great resource. If you want, on this gender and sexuality conversation, uh, if, if you want to talk to somebody, I'm happy to talk to you as well, but she's, a, she's fantastic. Or if you want to think about how do we talk to our kids or grand, grandkids, she'd be a great resource. Daniel Gaiman, many of you know Daniel, he's an elder at large now. He would love to talk to you about these issues. He has his own unique story that's so beautiful. Um, in the sermon notes online, there their information is at the end of those sermon notes. So they've, I've, got a, I've got their cells and their um, email available. So I want, they want to make themselves available, and I want to make them available to you. So um, let me pray for us, and then we're going to do what is just so fitting today and celebrate communion together. Well, Father, um, in the midst of <laughs> such a complicated culture, uh, such a complicated world. I know it's always been complicated. You have called us to be this prophetic voice and to be this faithful presence, an alternative community. Lord, would you um, make us holy as you are holy? Lord, we need you to sanctify us. We, we, uh, we do our best, and yet we need your spirit to sanctify us. We need to be so rooted in the forgiveness that we have at the foot of the cross. And so I pray that um, even today as we, as we meet you at these tables, that you would sanctify us. You would draw near to us. Uh, you would comfort us, convict us, encourage us. Be with us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.